I'll ask that you remain seated this morning for the passage. We're reading from Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead, and I alone escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin 
or charge God with wrong. The word of the Lord. I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. Is that something you sing truly? That to taste God's goodness is something that having tasted only God's goodness, to which you do not want? Or is the melody of our heart more truly? I shall not want. I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, and when you remove all the frustrations of my life, then I shall not want. When I taste your goodness and you take away my pain or my suffering, then I shall not want. The book of Job calls us into a place of wrestling with why we, why anyone follows God. Why do we seek relationship with Him? And is it more bound up for who He is? Or is it more bound up for what we perceive to receive from Him? I think that's one of the reasons that there's such a strong reaction to the book of Job. I uh, mentioned at midweek that we'd be looking at Job this week, and I've never heard a, uh, a, a sound of despair equal to the sound that was uttered in midweek. And while, you know, you may say to a person in the church, oh, I'm thinking about doing such and such a book, and they may say, oh, good, or oh, that's not my favorite book, people a number of you, when, when hearing that we were going to do Job, your response was, oh, I hate Job. Right? I don't hear that about any other biblical book. Why does Job elicit such a strong reaction? I wasn't helped when I went online. Breaking up the book of Job for a sermon series is actually quite difficult. And I could not find an example of the book having been broken up for a sermon series. Right? It was, I don't mean I, I couldn't find one I didn't like. Right? Almost every sermon series goes uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, dip your toe in somewhere in the middle in the last five chapters when God shows up. And that, I think, is the way a lot of us have read it, the way a lot of us have approached it. But by doing so, we miss a great deal of what the book is intended to communicate. And so we're, we're wading in, and I think it's important to do so. Job is a difficult book. It will be challenging for us on multiple levels. But one of the things I love about, about Rockwell Press, and I think one of the things that has caused those of you who have landed here to land here, is that uh, the church today is, is largely content to stay in the shallow end. Let's focus on some easy gospel passages, or let's look at something that's pretty straightforward and talk about how God improves your life. And eventually, life is going to push you into the deep end, if it hasn't done so already. And if the church hasn't actually labored to help you understand what it means to swim in the deep end, then you're going to be in big trouble. And so it's by wading into difficult places like the book of Job that we become a people, we become a community that learns how to swim in the deep end. And then when we're pushed out into the deep end at various times, uh, hopefully we help each other to swim and to actually thrive there uh, and to find joy there. When we start a new sermon series, uh, we often have to do a little bit of uh, background work. We have to set the stage in order for us to, uh, to know how things are going to unfold. There are two big picture items that we need to have in place before we proceed into the book of Job. The first question is, what kind of book is Job? 
What kind of book is it? Now, uh, Job is a funny book, to be sure. And by funny, I mean odd, uh, unusual. It has several features that just aren't, make it different than ver- pretty much every other book, any other book in, in the, the Christian canon. What are some of those features? Well, most books that are talking about a person uh, in history would talk about, say, uh, so-and-so, born of so-and-so, uh, during the reign of so-and-so. Uh, you know, there are historical references. There are no historical references in uh, the book of Job. None that can be identified, um, which I'll speak to in a moment. Uh, but the sense, the book almost starts kind of in the sense of a long time ago and in a land far away. This is what transpired. This is one of the reasons that Job and, and the canon has always been grouped with wisdom literature. It's never been grouped with the historical books. It's considered a wisdom book, and that's why it's seated alongside Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. Uh, Job is funny, too, because um, it's got this kind of uh, mysterious quality to it, which might best be uh, explored by a comparison. So imagine that a book was discovered today and hit the bestseller list, but it was written in uh, really old English. A lot of these and nows and uh, old sentence structure dating hundreds of years ago. But there's no, it's never been seen before. We don't know where it came from. So you would have to decide, or scholars would have to decide, is this book really old and we just lost it? Or is this book uh, simply written to appear old? Do you get the question that's being raised? Okay, this is the question that's raised with Job. Job is written both to, uh, to picture a very ancient time period, right? Job's money is in animals, Right? It's before any coinage. Uh, it's, if you were going to actually date at some point, there's no reference to anything resembling the law in the book. So you would have to probably date it as one of, and some people do date it as one of the oldest, if not the oldest book in the Old Testament. Right? Um, and so it has, on the one hand, an appearance of being very old. It's also written in Old Hebrew. But Job doesn't come on the scene until late in Israel's history, and the theological themes that it takes up happen late in Israel's history, right? And early in Israel's history, we don't see them really, we don't see Israel yet wrestling with the themes that are taken up in the book of Job. Job uh, represents themes that are wrestled with later in Israel's history after particular events. And so the decision has to be made, is this a book that was really lost and happens to pop up at a certain time, or is this a book that was written uh, in that sense to appear old? Oddly, too, almost every reference to Israel has been removed. No one has any idea where the land of Uz is. If it existed, it certainly didn't exist in Israel. There's no other reference to a land of Uz in Israel. Uh, there's no reference to the law. Uh, Job will speak of Yahweh, but in other places, a generic name for God will be used. And all of Job's friends are foreigners. They're not Israelites. Okay? So, to make a long story short, there's a long-standing debate whether Job should be read as parable or as history. In other words, is Job a historical figure that existed in a particular place and time and all of this happened as it's recorded? Or is this like when Nathan shows up to David and tells the story of the one sheep uh, to convict him? Or when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan? 
Now, I know that that suggestion may be new to you. It may even sound a little bit scandalous to you. I'm not trying to be scandalous. Job is a difficult book to place, and it seems to be written with a very particular purpose and tends to have some qualities that we would associate with parable. Now, so why am I telling you this? The whole reason that I'm telling you this is that for some of you that we've had conversations and for people I've had conversations with over the years, I hear essentially this. I won't read the book of Job because I cannot humor the idea of God acting this way. And that, that's a legitimate concern. Right? In other words, if you haven't really wrestled with Job, you need to realize that it's hard. Right? What loving parent goes to the seediest person in town, right? the real you know, person who is criminal and, and uh, you know, filled with lies, and says, hey, have you considered how obedient my child is? And then, uh, well, the person says, well, uh, yeah, he's obedient because you provide for all his needs. If you don't provide for him, he's not going to be obedient anymore. And then you as a parent say, Oh, okay, let's see. Right? That's unsettling. That's not a very, it's not a picture that we would normally associate with the love of God. And so, for some of you, you come to Job and you say, I'm out. Not going to do it. I can't. And so, I at least want to hold a door open for you in the sense that many Old Testament scholars today argue that Job should be read as parable. And in that case, then the setup is something of an artistic rendering to create a situation in order to take up the issues that God wants to take up through the writer. And it isn't a literal occurrence, but it is a a setting of the stage to wrestle with some very big questions. Now, some people think Job is historical. Some people think it's parable. In the end, I don't think it really matters. Whether you read Job as parable or whether you read it as actual history, I don't see how the message changes. I don't see how you don't end up in, uh, in a very similar spot. Unless we judge one another too harshly, if you want to read Job historically, that's fine. But realize you do have some difficult theological challenges. If, if, if God is very willingly saying, oh, father of lies, yeah, maybe you're right. Why does God want to impress the father of lies? Why does God want to engage a wager with him? Right? A historical reading is not without its theological challenges. So that's big picture number one. Right? What kind of book of Job is? It could be a couple different kinds of books. And I think you, you have a choice before you that you can make. Number two, in order to understand Job and what's going on in the book, you have to understand what theologians refer to as progressive revelation. A progressive revelation simply is the idea that God has disclosed more of himself over time. We understand more of God when he shows up to Abraham, and then we understand a little bit more when he shows up to Moses, and we understand a little bit more of him when he shows up to the prophets, and ultimately all the way to the incarnation. Right? We understand God far more fully when he shows up in the flesh than we had previously, and this is why the author of Hebrews says, in former times, God has spoken to us through the law and the prophets, but now... He's spoken to us through his son, and then he proceeds to explain how the son trumps everything that has come before. That's why Paul in Galatians 4 will say, yeah, the law served a purpose, but it was a guardian or a tutor for Israel. 
In other words, it existed to train Israel and teach them in a certain way to prepare them for the coming of Christ. But now that Christ has come, we don't need the law, the Mosaic law in its entirety any longer. This is the idea of revelation unfolding, growing perhaps over time, if you will. And what what it creates in the biblical revelation is some places in which we see later revelation um, and it's, trumping isn't really the right word. Um, I mean, it, it's not a bad word, but it's... Well, let me give you an example. If you go to the Mosaic Law, right? Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's God's revelation to his people. Well, when you come to Christ, what's God's revelation? Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. So we see that what, you know, God reveals himself in a way that's appropriate and gives commands to his people that's appropriate in a certain context or a particular time, and then that may change over time. You know, uh, marriage is, is difficult as well. It's another good example. We say, well, of course, from creation, God intended for man and woman to be one, to be united. A, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, uh, and, and there's marriage. Well, you really only draw that conclusion that sharply because Jesus taught you to do so. And in the Old Testament, it's much more complicated because the law itself gives provision and instruction for multiple wives. And virtually every hero of the Old Testament you can name had multiple wives. So there's, again, an example of how revelation unfolds over time. Now here's the example that matters. I hope you're still with me. Oh, good. You're doing much better than the first service. This was way too much for the first service. I think it was the hour of the day, not, not, I'm not, no comment on the people. Um, so the, now, the example that matters is uh, when you go to the Mosaic Law, you see uh, a very well-articulated theology of punishment and blessing based on obedience. If you obey, you're blessed. Right? If you obey, you get 20 oxen. If you disobey, you're going to be cursed. You're going to lose what you have. Right? We see this playing out in Israel's history. Not only that, but the Ten Commandments themselves indicate that uh, if you're blessed, that blessing goes to your children. And if you're cursed, that cursing goes to your children. Right? There's a generational quality to how you live. Well, if you fast forward to Ezekiel, this has become a big problem in Israel's history. Uh, and Ezekiel will say, no, 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 that's not the way it is. Zeo says, if, a, if a, a son of a good father is bad, he'll be held accountable for his badness. And if a son of a bad father is good, then he will be honored for his goodness. There's no longer a generational connectivity regarding our obedience. Okay? So you see that, that, that transition. And then when you go to the New Testament, of course, we talk about grace and forgiveness uh, toward disobedience and mercy triumphing over judgment. So again, we see the same kind of, of development or move. But if we go back towards this end of the, the spectrum, right, of obedience and blessing and cursing, all the way really to the book of Proverbs, that's what's in place. And in some ways, it becomes very black and white. So you have, um, you know, if you obey, you're blessed. If you disobey, you're cursed. If you raise your kids in the way that they should go, they'll never depart from it. If you, um, if you work hard, you're, you're always going to reap the reward of your labor, right? It's only the lazy person who act doesn't, doesn't make any money. So you have this kind of very well-ordered, very structured notion of right and wrong and the benefits for right and wrong. Okay, 
finally. Now, this is Job. Job says it's not that simple. Right? Job is one of these incredibly important places in the canon that is a stepping stone that moves the story forward. And it's a transition point from saying, uh, no, right? You, you can be incredibly um, obedient and still suffer. And you can work really hard and you, somebody may steal it from you. And you know people who are lazy and they make a lot of money. And, uh, you know, on and on and on. You know families who have raised their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and their kids walk away later in life. Right? Job is, is kind of the first place in the camp. There have been hits of it, but Job just lands like a boulder in redemptive history and says, no, it's not that simple. Life is far more complex. And by wrestling with that complexity, we need to learn more about God. And that's what the book of Job holds out for you. And it's also looking forward, right? It is a necess- If we're going to get to the New Testament, where the most righteous man, the only truly righteous man in the history of the world, hangs on a cross, but we started at a place where if you obey, you're blessed, right? There has to be, Job is kind of a midway point. It starts to unpack this complexity, but also will help Israel to start to look forward to a Messiah. So Job is an invitation to you to to walk into the complexity of life and to wrestle with God there. But in that, if you wrestle as Job did, you meet him. You meet him in a way that you hadn't known him before, and that is exactly what Job says. Job says at the end, I thought I knew God, but I really didn't. Right. So this is a pretty interesting picture. It's the most righteous man on the face of the earth. He gets more accolades than any other individual in the Old Testament. But by the end of the book, he says, I'd heard of you with my ears, but now I see you with my eyes. I thought I knew you, but I didn't, and now I do. But it's only by walking through the complexity of life and wrestling with what has occurred that Job actually arrives at that point. So, you ready? All right. You're like, what, we're not done? (laughs) That was plenty. All right. We've got to start the sermon. You've got to do some background. Okay. So let's just consider uh, the chapter one. All right. The first section is simply telling you that Job is really, really, really righteous. Not a little bit righteous. He's the most righteous guy ever. Right. In verse one, he gets more uh, props. And again, as I said, any other figure in the Old Testament, blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Not only that, but he has the perfect number of sons, seven. He's ridiculously wealthy, right? So much so that he's the greatest man of the East. And remember, we're still wrestling against that paradigm, right? Here, Job's wealth is a symbol of his righteousness, He's been rewarded by God because he's such an upright man. He's so upright that he's not only worried about his own sin, but every year he says, just in case my children have sinned, I'm going to sacrifice on their behalf. Right? Not really a Mosaic idea, Mosaic law idea. But Job is so righteous that just in case, and it's not even that they sinned outwardly, but they may have cursed God in their heart. I'm going to sacrifice on their behalf. This is how righteous Job is. And this is exactly the picture that we're intended to begin with. There is, in other words, as we're starting this story, there is no reason for Job to suffer as he will. That's the point of the opening. 
There is no, you know, if you want to say Job deserves suffering, there's no way to hang, there's nowhere to hang your hat on that hook. Job doesn't deserve anything. He's blameless. And it shifts from there to the courtroom scene. Uh, it's kind of a heavenly courtroom. Uh, God has uh, assembled uh, the, um, the sons of God, you know, presumably the angelic host, to give account of what they are doing. And God singles out Satan. Right? God is initiating the conversation. He initiates the dialogue with Satan in particular. And in initiating that dialogue, he also initiates the discussion of Job. Right? So now you should have that little queasiness in your stomach that says, this was God's idea. And God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Satan, as Satan is wont to do, simply asks a question. No charge, no disagreement, just a question. Does Job fear God for no reason? Does Job fear God for no reason? The question is essentially asking, okay, why are the righteous righteous? Why is Job choosing to be faithful and choosing to obey? Man, what a question, right? It's a question we we have to ask ourselves as we proceed through the book. You know, insert your own name. Why does blank fear God? Or do you, blank, fear God for no reason? What Job is suggesting really is twofold, one kind of direct assertion and one indirect assertion. The direct assertion is that Job only loves you because he's really well paid. Right? He's like a highly valued member of your entourage. And because you keep doling out gifts, he keeps tagging along. And this is Job, or Satan goes on to say, Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Now, cursing is going to be a big deal in the book of Job. And you have to understand it correctly because some people read Job and they say, oh, Job's righteousness is bound up and then he never cursed God. And you think to yourself, oh, I'm never going to say something angry or disrespectful toward God. And, you know, you kind of have, there's a bit of a tightrope here um, in the sense that Job is going to get angry with God. No question. Job's going to call God to account. Job's going to charge that maybe God isn't being faithful to his own promises that he set down. So to not curse God certainly is not talking about getting real with God. In fact, I would say the whole book of Job is an invitation to be very real with God. But curse is to express hatred. It's uh, in the end of the chapter, it says to charge God with wrong, which is the same idea, right? To actually say, God, you're in the wrong. I hate you for what you've done. Something of this nature. I curse you. I no longer want anything to do with you. You know, anger and fight, you know, um, I mean, it's so often helpful to think of a marriage. A marriage that has honest dialogue and debate and engagement with one another, that's really a beautiful thing in which two people are engaging each other, right? A marriage in which that does not occur, there's no relationship, right? It doesn't have, or where there's just contempt and just hatred. 
right? That's not real relationship. And you can even be in a house and pretend that you're respectful. You can pretend that you honor one another. But that pretending and not saying the hard thing isn't because you love and value the relationship. It's because you're avoiding right, the pain and the challenge that's actually required by the relationship itself. And this, this is, what, in one sense, what Job is about. It's inviting you into real relationship with God. To be real with Him in a way in which you engage and voice your frustration, but in a respectful manner. And to say, I, I don't understand what you're doing. And what you're doing seems to be very unfair. And to move toward Him in that way, that is not diminishing relationship. It's enhancing relationship. Because you're actually being real with that person. Uh, as opposed to simply avoiding it. So, it's just Satan, Satan says, if you take it all away, he's going to curse you to your face. And uh, so the one assertion is that Job is righteous only because it pays well. The second assertion is that God isn't just. Because if Job is just getting things uh, that he doesn't really deserve, he's just being blessed for this artificial worship of God, then God is handing out blessing uh, in an undeserved way. And if he's doing that, then he's not just. So the author of Job is seeking to wrestle with the biggest questions that can possibly be wrestled with in some ways. Why are the righteous righteous? And is God indeed even just? And it'll take you know, all, the whole sermon series for these things to play out. But today, for now, shockingly, what is enough is that after Satan says, yeah, take all of it away and he won't, he'll curse you to your face. God says, okay. He says he's yours. And just don't touch his body, which we'll give up next week, right? But he says, okay, let's see. And, uh, and then uh, Job loses everything. And, uh, you know, it's something that's easy. You know the story. You feel distance from it. But I think there should be kind of a, a sadness, a real uh, an empathy toward Job. Um, and certainly that's the way it's written here. You know that feeling that you got in your gut for the family that lost their child to the alligator in Disney World? That's the kind of feeling that you should have here. Right? Uh, the Sabaeans come in and take all of his donkeys and oxen. Uh, now, remember, we're talking about all of their, his wealth. right? We're not just talking, I lost my pet. He's losing everything. Uh, lightning takes all of his sheep. Uh, the Chaldeans come in and take all of his camels. And then a great wind knocks down the house of the elder brother in which all of his children have gathered uh, for a feast, killing all of them. And in each case, only one person escapes as if only to serve the role to tell Job that he's lost everything. It's a complete, um, it's complete devastation and it's represented in Job's uh, embodiment of his grief. If you look at verse 20, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. Right? If you, in ancient uh, Judaism, if you want to say, Someone is at the, pit, the very pit of grief and despair. That's how you write it. Right? That he tears his robe and shaves his head and falls on the ground. And then it says the most astonishing thing. And worshipped. Right? In the place of this utter despair, Job has not cursed God. Right? But instead looks toward God to understand what has happened. He still understands God is sovereign, even in the midst of his despair. And he says in verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Which is an outstanding confession. It is 
this very real notion that I come into the world naked. I haven't created myself. I'm going to leave the world naked. I can't preserve my own life. And the Creator can give and the Creator can take away. One of the things we'll wrestle with is if we expect blessing from the Creator, who are we then to decide that we can't also receive challenge or testing? On what grounds would we make that assertion? Now, I think Job is, is making... I think Job is confessing something that is very true. But if this was all it was, if Job is simply saying, yep, you can do everything and I worship, right? We could end the book here, right? He's met the challenge. Uh, and, and, and God could say, see, uh, and could, could restore everything now. But it doesn't end here, right? Because we haven't really wrestled with what Job wants us to wrestle with. And I think in one sense, in that sense, Job is confessing something that is true, but it's not something that he knows in the way he'll know it at the end of the book. In other words, I uh, was reading a a comparison to a story of a man who had heard in World War II that he had lost his only son. And he grabbed a rail and he started to confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in God the Father Almighty. And his confession wasn't simply, I'm going to... You know, I'm going to recite the creed at this point in time. It was, I am lost and I need some anchor. And this is the only thing that I can hold on to. And I begin to recite it in order to communicate to my own heart that it's true. This is why the psalmist often uses that funny turn of phrase where he's speaking to his heart or communicating to his heart in a way where he's trying to persuade himself. In the midst of circumstances that communicate to him something different, he confesses what is true so that his heart will be persuaded. And I think there's that sense here that Job is confessing what he believes to be true, but ultimately to be persuaded in his heart of its notion. It will take the entire book and the debate with his friends that will ensue uh, to get to that point. So, what does Job hold out for you in the coming weeks? Well, first of all, I hope you read it. And let's, let's be straight with one another. It's a hard book to read. Uh, you get one and two are really fast and furious, and then you start this long uh, dialogue interrupted by sections of poetry, and it's not always easy to understand what Job's friends are trying to say because it's a, it's a very ancient notion. But you'll get most of it. And just... Just plod through it and try to get a feel for the book as a whole. It's intended to communicate as a whole. Secondly, some of you still have the tendency to live in a very Old Testament age, right? That age from, uh, particularly from really the beginning or at least at the latest, the law to uh, some of the wisdom literature, which is if you're suffering, it's because you're disobedient. Job is the place where that starts to say, nope. That doesn't work. It's not that clean and simple. And of course, Jesus will affirm that when he comes. And so if you have a knee-jerk reaction that when you're suffering, oh, I'm disobedient, I'm suffering uh, as a result of something that I've done, you need to realize that that, the Bible does not affirm that position for you. That's something that you're taking up probably for different reasons uh, in order to punish yourself. It's an invitation, again, to wrestle uh, with God and to understand that wrestling with God is worship. Right? Now, we're going to see this play out, but even now, it's important for you, for you to know, I think, 
Uh, one of the things that I hope at the end of the sermon series is for many of you, something happens and you're angry and frustrated, but you don't really wrestle with God. You really just confess with Job, naked I came into the world, naked I leave. God, you're the creator, you can do whatever you want. And then you move on. And you say, I'm not angry, right? As you berate your spouse and your children. I'm not angry as you swear at all the people who are cutting you off on the road, right? But you're very frustrated, right? And you, you think that wrestling with God isn't worshipful, or that's what you're afraid of. And it can go to that place, but Job is certainly invitation that, that wrestling with God can be worship. And it's worship that you need in order to grow with him. To know Job, as we go through it, is to understand the canon as a whole better. Right? What, the story of Job, uh, it starts off essentially in Eden. Right? Job's got an Eden-like existence. Calamity enters into the story of Job. He spends a long time wrestling with the brokenness of his world. God shows up in person, and resurrection commences. Everything for Job is restored. That story should sound very familiar to you because it is the story of the Christian canon. So to explore Job will be to really to understand the canon as a whole at a much deeper level. And it will be ultimately to appreciate that the God who shows up to Job in person at the end of the book is the God who shows up in flesh on our behalf and does not give us some wisdom to walk through suffering or does not tell us that suffering is an illusion, but is the God who enters into our suffering with us. He identifies with us by embracing that suffering and allowing it to fall upon himself. And it is that that makes our faith wholly unique. It is that which redeems the book of Job. And is that which nourishes us at the table this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you have entered into your suffering, uh, our suffering. You have not held yourself at a distance, but in great grace and in great mercy, you have come near. And so we praise you as the one true God and the one most beautiful God, made beautiful Uh, by your willingness to suffer on our behalf. Would you please grow us up in the midst of our consideration of the book of Job and help us to go into the deep end and to, to wrestle with the hard questions. And as we wrestle with those questions, uh, would you make us a community of believers that are stronger in their faith, more united in their faith, and, uh, and a group of believers that have something much, much deeper to offer to a world that is immersed uh, in a puddle that is two inches deep. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name.